Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and across the table from me is Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Mike Brown. How are you? Good. Do you like my new outfit? I do. You're very pink today. Matthew's wearing all pink. Which is awesome. We were talking before the show, and I'm thinking about going a little brighter, too. Yeah, I think you should be brighter. Yeah. (laughs) Intellectually as well. Yeah. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. The strongest earthquake ever recorded in eastern Canada, measuring 7.2 on the Richter scale, occurred at 5.02 p.m. Newfoundland time on the 18th of November in 1929. It was felt as far west as Ottawa and as far south as New York City. The quake centered around 250 kilometers south of Newfoundland along the southern edge of the Grand Banks caused a massive sub-ocean landslide. Two and a half hours after the quake, a series of tsunami waves smashed into Newfoundland's isolated Burren Peninsula, devastating property, upending the fishery, and causing 28 deaths. You are listening to Dark Poutine 232, Washed Away, the 1929 Newfoundland Tsunami. Earthquakes along the east coast of Canada tend not to be very noticeable. I can only recall a few very small ones as I was growing up in Nova Scotia. According to the Government of Canada, the Miramichi area of central New Brunswick, part of the Northern Appalachian Seismic Zone in which Nova Scotia is situated, endured a series of significant earthquakes occurring in 1982, and the largest was 5.7 on the Richter scale. And that was followed by numerous aftershocks thereafter. 
The zone also witnesses a continuing low level of seismic activity, including many larger historic earthquakes in New Brunswick. Further north of where I grew up and out into the Atlantic, off the coast of Newfoundland, lies the Laurentian Slope Seismic Zone, the seismic area in which the deadly 1929 quake occurred. This zone comprises an area off Canada's southeast coast, which includes the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. When the events in this story take place, what we now know as the province of Newfoundland and Labrador was still 20 years away from joining Canada. At the time of the quake and tsunami in 1929, it was a country all its own called the Dominion of Newfoundland and had enjoyed self-governance for almost 75 years. Human habitation in Newfoundland and Labrador can be traced back about 9,000 years. According to the site NewfoundlandLabrador.com, quote, A land of open space and rugged individuality, Labrador is probably best known for its wildlife, untamed, unspoiled natural landscape. But history also runs very deep here. The southeast coast, strategically positioned near the Atlantic Ocean and the route up the St. Lawrence, has been the home of indigenous people for centuries and visited by the Europeans since the Vikings. Per Wikipedia, Labrador's name in the Inuktitut language is Nunatsuak, meaning the big land, a common English nickname for Labrador. Newfoundland's Inuktitut name is Ikarumi Ikluak, meaning place of many shoals. Put together, Newfoundland and Labrador's Inuktitut name is a mouthful for English speakers like myself. Nanatsuak Ama Ikarumi Kluak. Oh my god, I'm so sorry for butchering that. I'm terrible at that. Hey, at least you're trying, dude. I am trying. Situated in the North Atlantic, only the hardiest folks seem to be willing to make their homes in Newfoundland. Drawn by some of the richest fishing in the world, in particularly along the Grand Banks, which is a series of underwater plateaus southeast of the island of Newfoundland on the North American continental shelf. Fisheries there have grown up around the embattled Atlantic cod, swordfish, haddock, and capelin, as well as shellfish like scallops and lobster, and other valuable sea creatures. I've just recently learned that my own ancestors on my birth father's side hail from a tiny island fishing community off the southeastern coast called Ramia, with a population of just 388. If you're from Ramia, there's a good chance that we're related. So, hi, cousin. <laughs> All 108,860 square kilometers of the massive island of Newfoundland is affectionately known by many as The Rock, thanks to its barren and craggy appearance. However, according to the site Bird the Rock, it's a birding site. Okay. Yeah. Quote, Landscape and habitat vary greatly across the island from the unique limestone barrens of the Great Northern Peninsula to the thick boreal forests of central Newfoundland and the glacial barrens and sheer cliffs that face the raging Atlantic along the coast of the Avalon Peninsula. This is one amazing place to experience. Do you think the rock has ever visited the rock? I would hope so. Yeah? I don't know. He probably has. Have you ever noticed he looks so much like Dwayne Johnson? <laughs> yes, I have noticed that. And played football here in Canada as well. But you say here you went to Newfoundland in the 80s? So, yes, I went to Newfoundland in the 80s. Um, I was doing some PR for the Newfoundland Teachers Association. Oh, that's fun. And as soon as I'd open my mouth, you get an "I, you're from away," or "or you're from the mainland." Yeah, right? it's uh, it's um, I yeah, it was such friendly people. Had a great time. I even went to a gay bar. 
There, oh, wow. There was a gay bar in... St. John's? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I met a, la- I met a guy whose last name was Organ. <laughs> that, that would be a name from Newfoundland. There's some interesting names there, uh, like Outhouse is a last name. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh, that's a shit last name. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Not if you're named Outhouse, you know? True. Yeah. Regarding Newfoundland's climate, the site skyberry.arrow says that Newfoundland has a humid continental climate influenced by coastal currents and icebergs. Summers are usually pleasant but brief. July mean temperatures remain cool along the southern and eastern coast, especially with mean daily temperatures in the low to mid-teens centigrade. However, the interior enjoys warmer mean temperatures slightly above 15 degrees Celsius. In July, the maximum temperature can even occasionally rise as high as 30 degrees in the interior. So that's pretty warm for Newfoundland. In winter, the Gulf of St. Lawrence and North Atlantic Ocean waters prevent temperatures in Newfoundland from dropping too far. Mean January temperatures range from minus 9 degrees Celsius to minus 7 in the interior to around minus 4 on the southern coastal areas. Coastal fog is very frequent in the spring on the east coast because of the icebergs off the shore. In the summer, when warm air flows from the south quadrant over the cold waters surrounding Newfoundland, fog engulfs the southwestern and southern coast occasionally for days. The entire island receives an abundant amount of precipitation, usually peaking in November and reaching a minimum in April. Winter snowfall is normally in excess of 250 centimeters everywhere with amounts exceeding 400 centimeters in parts of the western interior. Spring rains often fall on still-frozen ground and objects. Thus, ice storms are frequent in southern Newfoundland. And that's the shipping forecast for today. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. My dad uh, used to make a joke that I have continued to tell. I'm going to do a Newfie accent. I am half Newfie, so it's okay. (laughs) Weather tonight in Newfoundland is going to be dark. That's it for the weather. (laughs) My goodness, like, it doesn't sound like an attractive place to live. Okay, so there's lots of snow, there's icebergs. I mean, mean, it's it's pretty. It's beautiful. But the feeling of that, that, you know, like, oh my God. It's pretty harsh. It is very harsh. It's like they're clinging to a rock. Exactly. In in the northern Atlantic, essentially, Mm -hmm. right? I really do want to see the icebergs one day. I, I hear they're like skyscrapers going past you sometimes. Yeah, it's so so, so weird. I've seen pictures, but we should, I, we should do we should do a, a meetup in, in in Newfoundland. Yeah, somewhere somewhere near the iceberg alley for sure. You know, but it's it's funny. Our, our environment mm-hmm. actually has a really strong influence on on our culture and who we are as Canadians. Oh, hundred percent. So, like, yeah. I for my work in marketing, I really geek out on like macroeconomics and social segmentation and culture and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I read one study once that talked about how the environment really does make Canadians what they called fort people. While Americans are much more homesteaders, we've talked about this a bit before. Did we? Yeah, okay. but yeah, because Canadi- Canadians like needing to stick together during the harsh climate. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be a little bit more socialist in your approach. Right? Sure, yeah. And America was was built on like homesteading and going out and sort of that rugged individualism. Yeah, um, and that's sort of historically where some of it comes from. Right. Yeah. Like every every province in Canada has some sort of fort 
where where yeah. things were, yeah. you know, or like Fort. here it's Fort Langley actually yeah. was the first fort in British Columbia, I believe. Yeah, we're fort people. Yeah, we definitely are. And at Fort Langley, I was just down there the other day for a burger in the in the town <laughs> of Fort Langley, but it's quite a nice um is there visit. Actual, is there an actual fort? Yeah, there? there's an actual okay. fort and they have people dressed in clothing of the time and okay. They will show you around and do little displays. We watched a guy do a display with a musket one time. It was quite interesting. Have you ever shot a musket? No, I have not. My uncle had one. So, well, my family had a few. So mm -hmm. um, there was actually a season. Yeah. Deer hunting season, musket, musket season. Oh, wow. Okay. So I yeah. actually liked musket season because... The deer have more chance, I guess. They, yeah, because you have one shot and you got to like, you know, put the powder in and lick that, lick that piece of cloth and then put the ball in and then put the put the thing down and then make sure the flint's right and then shoot again. Yeah. I never shot it there. Yeah, it's like uh, between shots, it can be between one and five minutes. It depends how good you are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The ground started shaking at exactly 5.02 p.m. Newfoundland Standard Time on the 18th of November, 1929. In 1999, the St. John's Senior Resource Center published the book, Not Too Long Ago, Seniors Tell Their Stories. In that book, some of those who lived through the events of that evening shared their tales about what they recalled. You and I were talking about this. Mm -hmm. I love Eastern Canada sort of folk music and poetry. Mm -hmm. It's the best. Me too. It's it's so good. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take from a little song here as we go through this. Okay. A and and I see that you put into the script little bits of song. Yeah. Throughout, like little lyrics. I'm not, so, I'm not gonna sing. Oh, it. thank God. <laughs> so it's a, it's a song that was called um, "The Tsunami" by Alex Strang. Yeah. And he wrote it in 1932. 1932. So three years after. Yeah. So I'll start. Everything went grand until late that fatal evening, the time I do remember between four and five o'clock, and the people made a wonder, what's that rumbling noise like thunder? It seems on top and under and gives us such a shock. Oh, cool. Yeah. So the first story comes from Louise Hollett, and her last name at the time was Emberly. She was still living in Burren Bay when she shared her memories of the earthquake 60 years later. That's great. That's kind of cool. Mm. What's well, 70 years later? Wow. Yeah. 23 years old when the quake struck, Louise and her family lived in the town of Great Burn on Great Burn Island. Louise's mom, Mrs. Emberly, had entertained a friend that afternoon. The family matriarch was in the kitchen preparing supper and had just put apple dumplings into the oven when Louise noticed a strange rumbling noise. She thought something might be wrong with the stove. The Emberley family members then ran outside where they felt the ground continue to shake for around two minutes. Another woman, Mary McKenna, then Walsh, was a teenager when she felt the earthquake near her family home in Lord's Cove. She was outside walking back from the store, having run an errand for her dad, Jim. Out in the open, walking along when the quake began, Mary recalled not having anything to hold on to and was thinking she might fall down. She simply stood still and wrote it out. Mary hightailed at home after the shaking and her dad asked if she'd known what had happened. He told her that everything in the house had been shaking and Mary noticed a few cups had fallen onto the floor of their pantry. Eloise Morris was 16 at the time of the quake. 
Her home was in Collins Cove near Burren, but Eloise was living in St. John's where she was attending Memorial University and studying music at Prince of Wales. She was outside when she noticed lights on a nearby light pole swinging back and forth for a couple of minutes. She had no idea the significance of the events at the time nor how her family would be affected back home. In the then-named French Republic Overseas Territory of St. Pierre Miquelon, mentioned in Dark Poutine episode 221, about 18 kilometers west of the Bern Peninsula, at around 4.30 p.m., people felt the earthquake that lasted about two minutes. The earthquake, measuring 7.2, was the largest ever recorded in the region, a record which still stands. As well as the Richter scale, since 1883, the intensity of earthquakes is also measured using the Rossi-Forel scale. The scale uses reports from residents of quake-affected areas to determine that intensity. There are 10 ranks, with 1 being the least intense, while 10 is extremely intense. An intensity of 1 is, quote, recorded by a single seismograph or some seismographs of the same pattern but not by several seismographs of different kinds. The shock felt by an experienced observer. So if you were inexperienced, you probably wouldn't notice that kind of quake, an intensity of one. I just thought you farted or something. Yeah, like earlier. Yeah. An intensity of 10 equates to, quote, great disasters, ruins, disturbance of strata, fissures in the earth's crust, rock falls from mountains, end quote. Sort of like some of your farts. <laughs> Many of them. Oh, God. Oh, dear. Sorry. From St. John's, Newfoundland, all the way to the eastern tip of Cape Breton, in the November 1929 quake, the, no the November 1929 quake was measured at six on the Rossi-Forel scale, which involves, quote, general awakening of those asleep, general ringing of bells, oscillation of chandeliers, stopping of clocks, visible disturbance of trees and shrubs, some startled persons leave their dwellings. I love, I love that there's a, I love that there's an oscillation of chandeliers. Oscillation. Well. <laughs> I don't have a chandelier, Mike. There was an earthquake here in Vancouver one time that was a six on the Rossi-Forel scale. And I, was, I, was, I was here. I was at work. No, you, I don't know if you were here for that one. Well, there's one in, I think a year and a half in. So yeah. Be, and it was just a, Thunk and my whole bed moved. Yeah. Right. Well, this one was one uh, I was working at the gambling site Bodog. Right. And I was just outside the boardroom, which had glass walls. Right. And I saw the glass walls undulating. Wow. Yeah, they were just sort of wobbling. And the CEO of the company, Calvin, came and got me. He said, Mike, come into my office. This is so cool. And I was like, all right. It was like you could feel it. I felt like I was on a boat. Because we were up quite Coming a ways. To my office. This yeah, is exactly. so cool. This is so cool. But he had a balcony off his office, and right. we stood out on his balcony and watched the tall buildings in your neighborhood wobble. Mm. It was really, and it went on for probably two, three minutes. Yeah. It was really weird. Yeah, I just had the really quick one, mm -hmm. and but it just, it kind of, it was my first earthquake. Oh, really? And I was like, I had to sit there and think, my entire building. Mm-hmm. And all the land on it, and all the land, as far as I can see, just shifted. Yep. Right? And it went thunk, and we had we had this rental place, because we were renovating our house. And you know those sliding, uh, mirrored uh, closet doors? Yeah. They slide together. They're like, rattle, 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 rattle. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, my first earthquake! Oh, yeah, you, that was a little one. Yeah. 
uh, there was another one when I was working at Shaw and I was sitting answering phones and I felt it wobbling again. Like, and this one was a back and forth one. Mm -hmm. Some of them are up and down, but this one was sort of back and forth and it made me seasick sitting in my chair. Like I got seasick. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Motion sickness. From a 2006 paper on the 1929 quake by Alan Ruffman and Violet Hahn, quote, Onshore, the damage from the earthquake's shaking was restricted to some slumping and minor building damage in Cape Breton Island. Newfoundland, despite its proximity to the epicenter, experienced no physical damage other than broken crockery shaken off shelves because most structures were of wood frame construction built on solid substrates. As far as Ottawa, the intensity of the quake was measured at a Rossi-Forel scale as a 2, which means recorded by seismographs of different kinds felt by a small number of persons at rest. So if you're sitting at home, you felt a little bump. And I think that was probably what we felt that one that you're mentioning a few years ago where everything just kind of went thunk. Thunk. Yeah. Today, Natural Resources Canada uses the internet to collect on-the-ground reports of earthquakes made by everyday citizens. We'll include a link to the site at which you can report having felt an earthquake. Under the ocean, the quake was violent and caused a geologically significant redistribution of the earth. From the paper by Ruffman and Hahn, quote, On the ocean floor offshore, part of the Laurentian slope was shaken loose and began an underwater landslide that went on for hours and flowed at least 1,100 kilometers out onto the floor of the 5,000-meter-deep Somme Abyssal Plain. The, quote, turbidity currents moved at speeds of 50 to 70 knots, that's 93 to 130 kilometers per second, and cut 12 transatlantic telegraph cables in about 28 places. About 200 cubic kilometers of material was removed over an area of 20,000 square kilometers of the continental slope and rise. This material was redistributed over an area of 150,000 square kilometers out on the abyssal plain. This is an area one and a half times larger than the island of Newfoundland. Holy smokes. Mm, That's huge. It was massive. What was going on under the water was gigantic. As we learned after the earthquakes in Sumatra on Boxing Day of 2004 and in Japan in 2011, massive undersea earthquakes with huge displacements of earth can result in devastating waves called tsunami. This is what came next on the evening of November 18, 1929. And conveniently... I wrote about the Sumatran Boxing Day quake and tsunami in my first book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, available everywhere. (laughs) There, I think I did a passable job of explaining what a tsunami is. Quote, translated from Japanese, the word tsunami consists of two characters, one atop the other. The top character, su, represents the word harbor. And below is nami, of course, the figure for the word wave. So it means harbor wave. Yeah. A tsunami is not a single wave, but a series of them. The initial wave may not be as destructive as those that follow. Intervals between each wave may be as little as a few minutes to as much as an hour. Thus, many times people who believe the worst is over have been swept away by a later, more powerful wave. End quote. If you want to learn more about that particular tsunami, read my book. <laughs> The 1929 quake, although not as deadly as the ones originating in Sumatra and Japan, did create a tsunami that raced toward the unsuspecting residents on the Burren Peninsula. 
from the paper by Ruffman and Hahn. Quote, the submarine slump spawned a tsunami, often but incorrectly referred to as a tidal wave, that traveled about 600 kilometers per hour in the deep ocean water south and eastward from the epicenter. It was seen on the tide gauges as far as Charleston, South Carolina, the Azores, and the west coast of Portugal. It did minor damage in Bermuda and was seen on the east coast of Martinique in the eastern Caribbean. The tsunami traveled at an average speed of 105 kilometers per hour over the shallow water on the continental shelf north and westward, end quote. That, like, the speed is like a jet plane coming through deep water, mm. and then it slows down as it gets closer because there's resistance, but... Still, a wave coming at you at 105 kilometers per hour is pretty, <laughs> like, devastating. Yeah, I think they, they tend to slow down by the time they hit the uh, mm -hmm. hit hit the shore. But if you're on a boat, yeah, wow. You ever pretend when you're in the bathtub, you make little tsunamis, and you yeah. picture it being like the entire ocean? Yeah, it's, just, it's the same idea. I have so. done that, or <laughs> fart and think it's like a volcano. <laughs> you're hilarious. I remember uh, the night of the tsunami in Japan while well, it was daytime there, but I came home from work um, and watched it on the news and just the speed of the water traveling over the land mm. and just gathering things up without, you know, it was just relentlessly stalking yeah. and cars trying to outrun it and not being able to. It was horrific. Horrible. Eyewitness accounts taken from various sources recorded what happened next. After the shaking stopped, Louise Emberley and her family ate their supper and finished off with the apple dumplings her mom had made. Over the meal, they chatted about the rumbling they'd felt and heard. Afterward, Louise made up her mind to walk down to the Great Burren Telegraph office to see if there was any news about what had occurred. She grabbed her coat and put on her shoes and headed out into the cool evening. As Louise walked, the harbor was to her left. She noticed something odd. The harbor was dry. All the water was just gone. She could see the bottom of the harbor and noticed a fishing boat at the wharf sat on the harbor floor high and dry. So from the song, the water it proceeded far out and unexceeded, more than any tidal wave they had ever before. Some people in their fancy, some they almost went to frantic, trying to get saved from that awful noise and roar. Can you imagine, Mike, like the, it's just like, all oh, the water's gone. Yeah. Just gone. <laughs> I mean, in on the East Coast uh, around the Bay of Fundy, that's something you will see because it is the fastest tide in the or in the highest tide in the world. Yeah, uh, you'll see a boat just sitting kind of on the bottom of the ocean, what was formerly. Yeah, and then you know, but this is a, few a hours way later, more extreme yeah, version of that. This is a way more <laughs> extreme version. When she arrived at the telegraph office, Louise noticed several other residents, including some from the nearby island of Shalloway, were gathered around. The telegraph was still operational at this point. For the next few minutes, Louise recalled the telegraph operator, Mrs. Darby, furiously taking notes and giving news about the earthquake as it came from the other offices around the region. From Lyndon McIntyre's book, titled The Wake, about the events around November 18, 1929. Quote, George Bartlett, a prominent Burren merchant and member of the Newfoundland House of Assembly, was in his office when he experienced what he later recalled as a tremendous roar and vibration. Customers in his general store rushed out into the street, but then sheepishly returned when it seemed to have been a passing shudder and a lot of noise. 
Later that evening, people in Burren would remember and remark upon the fullness of the moon, the reflection of the moon and stars on an unusually placid sea. As one would later ruefully observe, there was no indication of the wrath to come. And we'll take a quick break right here. And we're back. Matthew, what are your thoughts so far? I really like how um, you're, you've picked up these stories from elderly people that, yeah. that live through it. Mm-hmm. Because the Sumatra Boxing Day tsunami yeah. hit me hard because I'd actually traveled to a lot of those places and actually saw, you know, hotels and places I've been to getting wiped out. Yeah. And it occurred to me that we have a short memory as a human race. Mm-hmm. Like tsunamis have been through, through throughout history, right? Yeah. And, you know, there's an earthquake and then all the water sucked out and still we go, oh, let's go down and look at it. We don't know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> right? But it's the same thing every time. And and I think, you know, these stories from the old folks in, in Newfoundland, you know, for the region help to remind people mm-hmm. of this danger. Yeah. I mean... You, you you said, like, yeah, let's go down and look at it. And uh, I mentioned in my book about um, a couple who I knew who were in the area mm. of that Sumatran tsunami who lost their lives. Yeah. And the last photos on their camera are of this big wall of water coming yeah. toward them. Yeah, you don't, you don't go and look. And I think at least with the Japanese, you know, we've, we've lived through it. Mm-hmm. The Japanese recent tsunami and the Sumatran one, you know, all this stuff now has been televised globally. Yeah. Stuff we didn't have before. So I think maybe uh, as society, we're kind of more up to speed on what these are and what to do. You mentioned how uh, the Japanese artist Hukosai yeah. uh, shared his vision of a tsunami. Yeah. I love, don't you love that yeah. picture? Yeah, the wave. Yeah. yeah. I have it on my wall. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's, it's such a good picture. Yeah, it is great. But it was done on a wood block. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, you know, if there's no news, like, let's make a woodblock. Here's a woodblock to remind everyone. (laughs) Exactly. Young Mary Wall shared her recollections about what happened next in the book, Not Too Long Ago, Seniors Tell Their Stories. Quote, I was in the front door when I saw the harbor. I still have my coat on. I called a father. Pop, there's no water in the cove. It's all rocks. He said, what? And I repeated it. And I said, come and see. That's when he got up and looked out. He stayed staring at the dry harbor. Then we saw the wave coming. People were outdoors hollering to everybody else. That was the way you got in touch with one another. So they all came out and saw it. Then we saw the water coming. Everybody started to run because it wasn't like it was coming in through the cove. It was like it was coming from the sky. That's how high the wave was. But it got smaller as it came in. End quote. The water came in with power going 40 miles an hour, taking everything before it as it rushed along the shore. There were skiffs, punts, and dories, likewise stages and shores, and dwellings swept to, gl- to glorious that will not be seen no more. Can you imagine that water flying in like that? How he says, Mike, that it looked like it was coming from the sky. It was so tall. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Oh, God. <laughs> it would be very scary. Marion Kelly, born Moulton from Kelly's Cove near Burren, was 13 years old at the time of the 1929 Grand Banks earthquake and subsequent tsunami. Marion was at the home of an elderly neighbor, transcribing for the older lady who was unable to write but wanted to send a letter to her daughter in Boston. 
When the quake struck, Marion was frightened and ran home. The route took her along the shore. Back at home, feeling safer, Marion, still in her school clothes, set to work doing her English homework at the kitchen table by the light of a kerosene lamp. Even in 1999, she could recall the sentence she was writing when the first wave struck, two and a half hours after the quake. The line was, quote, If you do not leave the house, I will send for the policeman with that fine. End quote. There was a tremendous roaring sound that sent all the occupants of the Shea home out into the yard, hoping to make some sense of and see what was going on. The family was shocked to see a wall of water advancing toward them. In the book, Not Too Long Ago, seniors tell their stories. She said, quote, The sea was just like a mountain coming, but slowly. That's what it seemed like to me. Right straight. End quote. Marion, instinctually knowing she had to flee, picked up her three-year-old brother, Elroy. She and he ran for higher ground, having to jump over a fence, her toddler brother in her arms. She looked back quickly as she ran, seeing water coming through the fence she just leapt over, and her house floating away, the kerosene lamp still visible in the window. The sight gave her incentive to run faster than she ever had. That's, uh, that paints a picture. It certainly does. You see, like, turn back and see your house going in that lamp that you were just working. Now the tidal beams reflected seemed sad and unexpected. Women and little children, they were bathing in the waves. There were mothers, sons, and daughters that got smothered in the water, and 16 precious loved ones had met their watery grave. Marion got to safety with her little brother Elroy, who was too young to remember later what had happened. Marion's mom, Frances, and the youngest in the family, Dorothy, were not so lucky. They were washed away, never seen again. Marion's father, captain of a schooner, had been out of communication gathering wood for the winter elsewhere in Newfoundland, away from the effects of the waves. He returned a week later to find out his home had been washed away and his wife and daughter were missing, presumed dead. Just barely a teen, Marion was now the woman of the house, quote-unquote left to raise her two younger brothers, Elroy and another named Curtis, who'd thankfully been at a relative's home during the tsunami. Marion recalled feeling lucky that she hadn't waited longer to walk home after the quake, as she might have been caught in the tsunami and washed out to sea. According to the book Not Too Long Ago, Seniors Tell Their Stories, Thoughtful, Marion said, quote, So I don't know. I think all our lives are planned. Don't you? End quote. At Shingle Point after the quake, Tom Pike, a veteran who'd lost an arm in World War I and now a customs collector, was hosting some neighbors for a poker game in his family home. His wife Agnes was baking bread as the men played hand after hand. From Lyndon McIntyre's book, The Wake, at about 7.30, the poker game and the baking were interrupted by a townsman who arrived in a state of breathless panic. Something ominous was going on outside, Someone went out to check, then rushed back in. The tide was rising rapidly, he said. A tidal bore, almost like a wave, was surging down the harbor, straight towards Tom Pike's house. Cards were dropped. There were three children in the Pike's house, little girls between the ages of one and twelve. Tom and his fellow card players grabbed the children, and with Agnes close behind them, ran across the open shingle strand for the safety of the meadows on the hill that rose above the town. The water rose up again, cresting as a ten-foot wave, then spilling forward, 
breaking against the Pike's house, then surging past it towards and then well past the end of the harbor. The house was still firmly on its foundation as the sea withdrew, dragging with it boats, debris from shattered wharves and staging, and fishing gear. The water retreated seawards, only to return, now littering the shoreline with the remnants of what just minutes earlier had been the livelihood for a community. And then Tom Pike could see his barn teetering as it floated down the harbor, and he could hear a furious racket coming from inside, the sound of battering. The door swung open, and Pike's little Newfoundland pony leapt into the swirling water, swam to shore, clambered out, and galloped away. Three days later, he returned. End quote. Poor pony. Poor little pony. You imagine you're just playing cards with your buddies, and someone runs and says, we got to get out of here right now. The water's coming. Nobody had seen it before. Right, right. yeah. <laughs> like, can you imagine just, you know, you walk outside, Mike, and there's this wall of water. Like, you, you have to you have to take it all in. Yeah. Very quickly. And then, and then figure out what to do. Yeah. Really quickly. Yeah. Right. And you've got a little quote from the song here. Yeah, I like this part um, with, with this section of your story because it talks, the song goes, it, it crept the highest fountain, it drove people to the mountain. You know, they're going higher up. Yeah. Women with their children, also elderly men and boys. Their lot was in the water, the water's great confusion, saying, let us still go farther. We don't know how far it will rise, right? So they're running. Yeah. And they don't they don't know how far they have You don't to know go. if it's going to, just keep going where right? you're going to be safe yeah. yeah louise emberly was still at the telegraph office when the waves washed into great burren thankfully the office was on high ground and everyone there escaped the devastation although many had lost or damaged homes and property many present had no idea what was going on why the ocean was doing what it was they'd never seen anything like it a local lighthouse keeper sydney hussey who'd hailed from england explained what was happening to his frightened neighbors that after a quake under the ocean, it was not unusual that what he called tidal waves would follow. The United States Geological Survey explains the difference between tidal waves and a tsunami. Quote, Although both are sea waves, a tsunami and a tidal wave are two different and unrelated phenomena. A tidal wave is a shallow water wave caused by the gravitational interactions between the sun, moon, and earth. Tidal wave was used in earlier times to describe what we now call a tsunami. A tsunami is an ocean wave triggered by large earthquakes that occur near or under the ocean, volcanic eruptions, submarine landslides, or by onshore landslides in which large volumes of debris fall into the water. End quote. The helpless people, standing with Louise, had to watch powerless to help as tons of fishing gear, infrastructure, boats, and homes were smashed to bits over the three main tsunami pulses, causing local sea levels to rise between two and seven meters. At the heads of several long, narrow bays on the Burren Peninsula, the momentum of the tsunami carried water as high as 13 meters, or 42 feet. Some of the folks from Shalloway, among those watching the destruction, feared they'd return to their islands and find everything gone. However, when they finally made their way back, they discovered only minimal damage. For the most part, Shalloway had been spared. And tsunamis are weird that way. Depending on where you are and how the land is made and how the ocean floor is made, you may be spared when everything around you is gone mm. and destroyed. It's just yeah. like, it, it all depends on 
different bits of geography and things like that. It's quite fascinating. I think in Vancouver, probably relatively safe because Vancouver Island would get it. Yeah. Right. And would would probably, we'd have some damage, but it would hit the island first. Yeah, it would definitely hit the island first. From Natural Resources Canada website. While the wave smashed and destroyed many buildings, it simply lifted others off their foundations and floated them away. One general merchandise store, 9 by 17 meters, was moved 60 meters inland and deposited in a meadow with all its stock left intact on the shelves. People took to the remaining boats in search of people hanging on to debris or trapped in floating homes. In one such home, rescuers discovered a sleeping baby whose family had been drowned on the first floor. A man, swept to sea, swam to another floating house only to find it was his own. The house was later towed back to shore and replaced on its foundation. The ferocity of the wave was not restricted to the land. It also tore up the seabed. This destruction of seabed was believed by many Newfoundland fishers to be the dominant factor in poor fish catches during much of the Great Depression. The poor catches seemed to be the result of a failure of the bait fishery. This failure involved three species of open seas, herring, squid, and capelin, and has proved hard to pin on the tsunami as its disruption of the nearshore and shoreline sediments. The day following the tsunami, a winter storm moved into the area, dropping temperatures and adding sleet and snow to the survivors' misery. The provincial capital of St. John's and the rest of the world did not immediately know of the devastation caused by the tsunami. The only telegraph line from the Burren Peninsula had coincidentally and unfortunately gone out of service just prior to the earthquake. When word did get out, help came quickly. The SS Meagle was dispatched from St. John's with a relief committee of the government, doctors and nurses, and arrived at Burren on the afternoon of November 22nd. Long before the coast was reached, wreckage was met. Mute evidence of the disaster which had befallen the region. Recovery assistance was also provided by the Red Cross and British American governments. Here's a brief excerpt from November 27, 1929 account from Honorable Dr. Mosdell aboard the Meagle, as reported to the St. John's Daily News, Lost at Sea. Quote, Dwelling houses were reduced to a condition reminiscent of wartime description of the effects of heavy shell fire. Former sites of gardens and meadows now thickly strewn with boulders, some of them as large as casks thrown upon the shore by devastating force of the tidal wave. Motorboats, stages and wharves, piers lifted and thrown far inland in heaps of ruins. Lord's Cove and Lamoline, visited by the relief expedition yesterday here, dozens of houses, stores, and stages were found thrown bodily into the pond at the head of the harbors, huddled together in one heap of destruction. Some lay upright but half submerged, while others lay on their sides, and still others entirely overturned. So there's a famous photo which dramatically sums up the aftermath of the tsunami. According to Alan Ruffman, Geomarine Associates, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, the photo shows a house tied up to a schooner in Little Burn Harbor after the November 18, 1929 tsunami at Portobra, Newfoundland. In Ruffman's 1986 interviews with Robert Isaacs of Stephenville, Newfoundland, and Ronald Mitchell of Halifax, Nova Scotia, both of whom were school-age boys living in Portobra at the time of the earthquake and tsunami, quote, 
The photograph shows a large schooner at anchor with a two-story house and an attached shed behind it, floating directly astern of the schooner. There is an island close by behind the vessel and more rugged land in the far background. The house belonged to Mr. Stephen Henry Isaacs, the uncle of Ronald Mitchell, of port Seven lives were lost in this village, but none of them appear to have been members of the immediate Isaacs family. It was swept away from port by the tsunami and found floating offshore one to two kilometers southeast of the mouth of port Inlet. It was towed into shelter into Little Burn Harbor by the owner and his father, William Henry Isaacs. There was apparently a lot of dry lumber stored under the house. Some of the wood was still trapped there when it was recovered and may explain why the house floated so high in the water. The house was temporarily attached to the schooner Marion Bell Wolf, which had been anchored there for the winter season. The schooner did not tow the home back to the shore and was unaffected by the tsunami. The Marion Bell Wolf was built in Shelburne, Nova Scotia in 1920. She was 126 feet, 38.4 meters long, and had a Canadian registered tonnage of 116 tons. The island in the near background is believed to be called Paul's Island. The peninsula behind the island on the right is now part of the town of Burren. On the left is Simmons Island, and in the far background is Party's Island. The house was eventually restored to its original location on shore. For weeks afterward, fishermen and sailors returning home told stories of seeing debris and the remains of homes floating far out at sea. That's an incredible photograph. It really People is. People should go online to take a look at it. Yeah, I. It put, looks so beautiful, though. I'll <laughs> put links to it in in those the I, in the show notes. Those islands are beautiful. I actually, if I could paint, I would like to paint a picture of that house being towed by yeah. that. Um, I'm gonna do a bit of the song that leads into your next part here. Okay. And, and it's amazing how this guy in the song got almost everything down. Yeah. A word of desperation to the people of each nation who sympathized with charity. God bless them one and all. And their names should be recorded. It's no doubt they'll be rewarded when they go before their maker in the judgment hall of God. So this section is about how people started giving money. Yeah. So donations came from across Newfoundland, Canada, the United States, and the United Kingdom, and they totaled around $250,000. There was never an accurate official list of the victims produced by any branch of the Newfoundland government. In the report entitled Loss of Life, the Honorable Dr. Harris Munden Mosdell, chairman of the Board of Health Burren West, reported, quote, The loss of life through the tidal wave totals 27. 25 deaths were due directly to the upheaval. Two other deaths occurred subsequently and were due to shock and exposure, end quote. Later research attributed an additional death to the earthquake. The last victim, a little girl injured during the tsunami, never fully recovered and finally died in 1933, bringing the death toll to 28. On their earthquake preparedness page, the government of BC says in the event of an earthquake, you should drop, cover, and hold on. 1. Drop to your hands and knees. If you're inside, stay inside. Don't run outdoors or to other rooms. 2. Cover your head and neck with your arm and take shelter under a sturdy piece of furniture. If there's no shelter nearby, crawl to the nearest interior corner or wall while continuing to protect your head and neck. 3. Hold on to your shelter, covering your head and neck until the shaking stops. On their tsunami preparedness page, the BC government talks about what to do if you're near the coast and feel an earthquake in an area without evacuation maps, plans, or cell service, 
immediately move to at least 20 meters above sea level. If you live in an at-risk community with evacuation plans, move to high ground following your designated tsunami evacuation route. Follow all instructions from local officials, stay on higher ground till you receive the all-clear message from your local authority, tsunami waves can last several hours. Never go to the beach to watch the waves. A tsunami can move faster than you can run. And that's it. Uh, let's talk about some disaster preparedness. I mean, we're, we're going to have an earthquake here, for sure. There's a big one coming. Of course we are. CBC um, meteorologist Joanna Wagstaff is also really educated in earthquakes right. as well. So she did like a big series uh, over time on CBC on their website. And I think there was a bit of a podcast about earthquake preparedness here in British Columbia. It's fantastic. So yeah. obviously, uh, I'll have to check it out. Check that out. But what have you and Justin done? Like, are you guys preppers at all? Like, yeah, we are a little bit of preppers. So um, it started with an earthquake backpack. I got them for Christmas one mm -hmm. year. Um, and it said on it, uh, two day Tripperson kit. Yeah. And when Justin unwrapped it, he said, or a one-day four-person kid, if you, quote, happen to have an accident. <laughs> I'm like, gee, thanks. Right. He's like, push me off the building and keep it for for a couple of days. But, yeah, we also have an agreed meeting place. Yep. Uh, on slightly higher ground. You know, it's more like an earthquake um, preparation than tsunami, but we are smart enough to go, you know, we're downtown and there's water around us, so it's higher ground. Yeah. So we have a agreed place to meet if we're separated or when it happens. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have uh, enough food and water, enough water for three weeks. Yeah. And enough food for a month, canned food and stuff like powdered milk. There you go. Yeah. And of course we have canned food for Steve, um, but he'll probably be the last survivor. And when the food runs out, he'll probably eat our bodies. It's gladly. <laughs> Um, we also have some medical kit and medication. And I think the next thing I want to do is buy like a crank radio, a generator and a Coleman stove. I have a crank radio. Okay. Yeah. And I also have like a, a really cool um, battery charger that's solar powered. So okay. I can just put my battery charger out into yeah, the sunlight. Yeah, these sort of techie things I want to get. So the first thing I focused on was the, you know, the actual medical mm. food, yep. water, where we would meet. Yeah. And we also have like small, lots of small change and stuff. Oh, there you go. And um, Justin won't let me get a gun. Yeah, you don't need one. Yeah, well, I'm just, I'm worried about, um, so I'm I'm pro-gun control, but I'm not anti-gun, if you know what I mean. Do you have your PAL, your, 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 there's like a, a gun thing, like a license that no, you need? No, no, yeah. because I've, you know, I moved away and never needed it, so. Right. But I am a little bit like... Well, when society breaks down, like if it's really bad and society breaks down, like do I need to protect myself? But Justin won't let me get a gun. I have surprises. <laughs> like bear traps and shit. Yeah, I just have surprises. You're, you're like home alone. You're, you'll be like home alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I learned everything I know about uh, preparedness from home alone. Yeah. Okay. And uh, walking dead. But yeah, so, you know, I think, you know, we just, we're kind of the better safe than sorry. And you just have to take action to actually go, okay, this weekend, let's go out and buy some stuff yeah. for survival. Yeah. Right? That's all it takes. Yeah. I've got, I've got a, a kit that's ready to go. Okay. Um, I need to start. Is to, it in a little Hello Kitty backpack? No, it's in a, like a, it's like a camo backpack. Okay. Anyway, yeah. 
the tactical thing. Mm -hmm. But there's like in there, there's all I need to. I could survive out in the wild with that. Right. Which is interesting. Like I have one of those really cool straws that will filter water and all that kind of stuff. So I could drink out of the toilet if I needed to. And what about for the cats? No, uh, that's this is what I gotta figure out. Yes, I got cats. But anyway, let's let's oh. not go into that right okay. now. Yeah, because you have to look after your babies as well. That's yeah, right. Like totally. literally we bought stuff for Steve mm -hmm. because we're like, you know, we're gonna need him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, there you go. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 232, Washed Away, the 1929 Newfoundland Tsunami. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Oh my goodness. Let's listen to our first voicemail. Hi, Mike. Hi, Matthew. My name is Taylor Janak. I am from Cambridge, Ontario. Um, I have been listening to you guys for almost two years now. Um... Your episodes are literally the perfect time from when I leave my small town to when I head to Toronto, where I used to go to school for film and television. So I respect you guys so much. You literally entertain me every week. And I used to be scared of these kinds of stories and these topics, but you two have really opened me up to understanding what fellow Canadians go through and just the history behind it all. And I just want to say I absolutely love it. Keep doing it. Um, and if you ever need a third guest, let me know. So <laughs> thank you guys and go shit in your hat. Well, that's kind of Thanks, how you, Taylor. that's how you kind of came on into <laughs> the realm of dark poutine. You said, Hey, if you ever wanted somebody to and help like, you, give me a chance. And they're like, Hey, I need you to sit in once. And then it just happened. Yeah, exactly. So Taylor, you drive from Cambridge to Toronto every day. Is that a long haul? Long enough, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's that. A lot of people spend a lot of time on the train, and that's what helped me to make the decision to leave uh, when I was offered the package. It was either stay or take a package, and it was like I figured it out. I I spent like more than a month of my life each year on the train. <laughs> yeah, Teller's probably driving. There's not a lot of uh, yeah useful trains in Ontario. Well, there are some, but anyway. Uh, let's listen to another voicemail. Uh, uh, here we go. This one. Hey, Mike and Matt. This is Sarah from Melbourne, Florida. Uh, I did it. I finally did it. I caught up on all the episodes. Now I have to listen and wait until Mondays, like a peasant, like a commoner. Oh, well, I, I shall sally forth and carry on. Um, I wanted to give a call again. <clears throat> Because, as I said, I've only just recently caught up. And I got to thank you, Mike, wholeheartedly from the bottom of my little Florida heart. Your your June 13th episode about the murders of uh, Corporal Irwin and Trooper Black at the end, or perhaps somewhere in the middle, <laughs> when you explained so beautifully, and I hate that I have to explain this to people who have lived in Florida their whole lives, too. The Sunshine Laws, which were literally named that to quote-unquote shine a light 
on the behavior of people as a means of like trying to publicly shame them um, is a unique set of laws that we have in the state that allow for basically anything that is marginally searchable as a public record to be blasted across, you know, now the internet. But when it was created, I wouldn't say it was a lot in child. Anyway, <clears throat> when the law was created, you know, it was more about like putting your mugshot in the paper and shaming everybody that got picked up for DUIs and soliciting prostitutes. But yeah, yeah, it has morphed into the Florida man phenomenon. And, um, so I just, I had to call and, and really appreciate you and thank you for highlighting the fact that it's not that the craziest stuff only happens in Florida. It's that Florida is, I think, the only state that has this specific law that allows for any police record uh, to be published <laughs> as news, as quote unquote news. <clears throat> So, um, so thank you for that. Thank you both, as always, for the incredible empathy and kindness that you show to the victims of these crimes. And, um, and that dedication marker is still in Broward County on the highway for, for the trooper and, excuse me, and the corporal. So, gentlemen, thank you again, as always, for this podcast and the incredible job you both do. I can't wait to, you know, listen like a commoner <laughs> every Monday <laughs> and, and um, go take a shit in your hat. Have a wonderful day, gentlemen. <laughs> Bye. Yeah, there you go. Newsflash. Florida woman appreciates dark poutine. <laughs> there you go. Newsflash. <laughs> uh, Thank yeah. you, Sarah. Isn't that where, um, what was it? Bath salts. I think that's where we first heard of bath salts was out of Florida. Thanks to the sunshine laws, some man got his face eaten off. Probably. It, it sounds like. But uh, but yeah, people think Florida is like this crazy place. No, it's just as crazy as everywhere else. It's just you don't hear about the crazy things that happen everywhere else. Right. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Here's another voicemail. Hey, fellas, uh, just uh, the devil here calling to say that I'm really liking your podcast lately. The episodes about Dennis Nelson were really quite interesting, and y'all do such a good job at researching your content. I have to say that uh, I'm a big fan of the show. Anywho, um, I got plenty of things to do, people to torture and stuff to take care of down here in hell. So I just wanted to say a quick note to tell you guys that you're doing a great job and to keep it up, boys. Uh, great work. Oh, and uh, give my love to Steve. Uh, give him a little pet on the chin for me or something. Or rub behind the ears and tell him you love him. And, you know, tell him the devil loves him too. Anywho, uh, y'all have a good day now, okay? Bye. Satan away. <laughs> Well, I love it that Satan calls every now and again. You know, if you need a fan of the show, uh, Satan's a pretty good fan to have. I'm more I than think. happy to have Mr. Morningstar listen to us. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and I will give um, give a little pet. If you give Cerebus, is that the name? Cerberus? Cerberus, uh, the, the hound of hell. Yeah, yeah, give Cerberus a little pet behind all of his ears. All of, his, all of the many, many ears. Six of them, I think. Yes, yeah, six-headed dog. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, Three I love a dog six years, I think. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. I love that Satan calls. But anyway, 
Me too. Yeah. Uh, let, we'll listen to one more. Let's do that. Hey, Mike and Matthew. I am calling from, uh, my name is Jackie. I'm calling from the high country of North Carolina. And I just love Matthew's disclaimer at the beginning of the show. I was shocked that no one else has calls about that, or at least if they have, you haven't played it on the air. So when I did not hear any comment about it again today, I thought, okay, I get to be the one to do it. I love it. Um, have a great day, and go take a poop in your duke. See ya. Yay. Thank you, Jackie. Yeah, I, I love that disclaimer. It's... <laughs> It saves you from having to come up with something fresh. I, I, I know. I actually came up. Uh, I was like, hey, Mike, why don't we do this? Because I was like, I need to come up with everything. Yeah. But thank you. Yes, it's fun. Yeah. I think it's fun. Yeah, we had a good time making it and, and putting Speeding it me up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, you know, I don't listen to this show, and I have a feeling that you speed up everything that I say. No, I don't. I definitely do. <laughs> and here's my... You, 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 you pr- yeah, you probably get about three sentences a week, just that, so you know. That's okay. Yeah. I'm used to ending up on the cutting room floor, no, you, Mike. D- you definitely don't. <laughs> you definitely don't. Uh, you have very thoughtful additions to the show that I appreciate very much, Matthew. Sometimes. No, no, you're, you're, you put a lot of effort into oh, thank you. what you do, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate you, Mike. Well... See, look at that. Look at us being all nice to each other. No, it's good. Like, of course it is. We, uh, we have a good time doing the show, and, and I guess as long as we have a good time doing it, we're going to keep doing Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Because, you know, you can't stop us now. <laughs> once, once, once we're into it, we're Don't into it. stop us now. Oh, gosh. I love Queen so much. Me too. This Queen, this queen loves Queen. I was so upset. I was in um, Kensal Green which is one of the Magnificent Seven cemeteries in London. And I found really cool stuff. There were some cool headstones and stuff, but I didn't realize I was in the cemetery that Freddie Mercury is buried in, and I didn't see him. Tisk, tisk. I saw George Michael in, uh, in Highgate, but I didn't see oh, Freddie Mercury. George buried in Highgate? Yeah, he's buried in Highgate oh. in the old section. It's beautiful up there. Okay. Yeah. But his family says uh, no photos and don't leave anything. So it was very clean around his grave. And, and I didn't take a photo, obviously, because that was his... I'm trying to his, respect it. Yeah, exactly, his family. Anyway, uh, I guess it's time to move on to Patreon. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. So we have a few patrons this week, which is really, really nice. That's great. First up, we have Rhiannon Britton. And Rhiannon, I don't know where Rhiannon's from, Matthew. Where is Rhiannon Britton from? She's from Chugwater. What's what's Chugwater? Chugwater, Wyoming. Oh, Wyoming. Wow. Is that close to uh, Devil's Tower? I always think of Devil's Tower when I think of Wyoming because of close encounters of a third kind. Ah. Yeah. But uh, what does Rhiannon do there in Chugwater? In Chugwater? Does she chug water? She uh, she looks after the dam. Oh, the 
Chugwater Dam. Yep. Oh, there you go. Hopefully there is a dam to look after. But There is. It's huge. Oh, there you go. That sounds very nice. That's why, like, the Devil's, what do you call it? The Devil's Tower? Yeah. That's what, it used to be filled with water. Oh. So it was an island. <laughs> okay. But they built this massive dam, the Chugwater right. Dam. So that's what, why you can actually see these uh, hills now. More bullshit from Matthew later. Uh, <laughs> Shut up. Some people were believing me. <laughs> Next up, from Eugene, Oregon. Really cool place. I've been to Eugene. Emily Bellinger. Emily Bellinger. And what does Emily do there in Eugene, Oregon? Emily Bellinger. It's not spelled that way, though. I know, and it's probably pronounced Bellinger, but I bet you originally it was Bellinger. It could have been, yeah. Emily Bellinger. Emily Bellinger. Emily Bellinger. Bonjour, Emily. Is a French teacher. Oh, she is a (laughs) French... Oh, gosh. And what school does she teach at? L'école de French. L'école de French. <laughs> okay. Not L'école de Francais. No. L'école de French. Yeah, because it's named after French fries. No, or, it's not. It just reminds me of the movie Better Off Dead, I think it is, where the mother... I've not seen that movie. Uh, ...brings French food, and it's like, oh, look, we're having French dressing. <laughs> oh, no. French fries. French bread. Oh, it's terrible. Anyway. French. Yeah. So she's a teacher at a French school. Yes. Well, that's very nice. Well, thank you, Emily. Thank you, Emily Bellinger. Bellinger. Did she send it in French francs? No, she did not. She sent Which it no in... longer exists. It is now euros. Yeah. Le... Yeah, she sent it in American dollars. American. We like American dollars. Yeah, they're worth more than our our little dollar. Woohoo! Even though we'll take your Canadian dollars as well. We'll take it. Next up, we have Ash B. And Ash, Ashley, is from Amherst, New York. Amherst, New York. New York City. No, I'm like Amherst. I'm sure it's like somewhere in New York State. It's not New York City, but anyway. Everybody always thinks when you hear New York, you think immediately New York City, but... There is actually a gigantic state attached to that city. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The Empire State. Yeah. New York State. So, so what does Ashley do there in Amherst? Did you say Ash B or Ashley? It's Ashley B. Oh, Ashley B. Yeah. Ashby. Yeah. She owns a restaurant called Ashelby's. Ashelby's. Okay. Yeah. And what what's her specialty there at yeah. Ashelby's? Crackers. Crackers. <laughs> Crackers like I'm, us. I'm, I'm now just mixing up all these the uh, American chains that I know nothing about. I, I just thought of Cracker Barrel. Oh well, but I'll never mention the chicken place. Okay, the chicken place. Oh, Chick Fil A. Because anti gay. Anyway, uh, next up we have Carly Walker and Carly. I don't know where she's from. It could be anywhere. She's from Inverness. Inverness? Well, Scotland. Oh, there's an Inverness in Nova Scotia, too. Yeah. But uh, Inverness, Scotland. Mm-hmm. I do want to travel to Scotland. I Now now that I'm sort of familiar with uh, the UK, I want to see the rest of it. Mm-hmm. I, I saw a lot of London. I saw Cambridge. But I want to go further north and maybe even Ireland. I'd like to take like a ferry to Ireland if I can. But uh, Northern or Republic of or both? Both. Why not? Yeah, why not? Yeah. Do the whole island. Yeah, I'd like to go there for a month. 
if I could. That'd be fantastic. Right? Just take a month of my life and just do the whole island, a whole couple of islands there. Scotland is gorgeous. Ireland is gorgeous. My grandmother's from Glasgow. Wales is gorgeous. Yeah. Your grandmother's from Glasgow. Yeah, my grandmother Brown was from my Glasgow. My great-grandmother's grandfather was from Ayr, which is just a little bit south on the coast. Well, there Maybe you go. Maybe they knew each other. Probably. And then my dad's family is from County Cork in Ireland. County Cork. But Carly is from Inverness. Okay. And what does she do there in Inverness? Carly is the heiress of the Johnny Walker fortune. Wow. Yes, the whiskey. Lucky. That they make up in Inverness. <laughs> wow. Yep. Well, there you go. Keep walking, Carly. Keep walking. Exactly. <laughs> Keep on trucking. And uh, we have one more patron for this week, and it's Katie Mallow, or is it Malo? I don't know. It's spelled like Halo, but I'm going to say it's Mallow. And Katie is from Modbury Heights in Australia. Australia. So she's a nice lady. Hello, nice lady. We have a Sheila from Australia, Modbury Heights. Katie. Katie, yeah. Katie Malo. Yeah. So what do you think Katie does there in Aussieland? She is um, a marionette um, specialist. Oh, okay. I was going to say, she's a marionette. That's nope. amazing. No, nope. she, she makes marionettes and oh, she puts cool. on shows. She, she worked with, uh, she worked on the early days of Stingray and stuff like that. Oh, Thunderbirds? Yes, and Thunderbirds. Yeah, I love yeah. Thunderbirds. So Katie Katie was instrumental in, in uh, Stingray and the Thunderbirds. That's very cool. Yeah. Thank so, you, Katie. A friend of mine, her uh, parents know, knew somebody who had to do with making Thunderbirds and got to see the the marionettes. Justin's obsessed right now. Oh, that's really cool. Yep. It is a cool show. Anyway. that Thanks, Katie. Is, that is it for uh, Patreon anyway, but uh, let's move on to PayPal, PayPal and see if anybody... Who are our PayPals this week, Who Mike? are our PayPals, our donut money donors at PayPal? Because I'm only gay for pay, people. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I'm gay all day. I, oh, I am, uh, well, you know, uh, yeah, okay, I'm a little disturbed by that, but... <laughs> Oh, my. Okay, we have a few. Whoa. We're going back in time. Uh, Patricia Kevranian. Thank you, Patricia. So we had her on before because we mentioned her in Patreon, I do believe. And so she sent some donut money because she was laughing. Little top up. She said, I'm an accountant from San Mateo, California, but I'd much rather be a stoner from Stoner, B.C. <laughs> Thanks for the laugh, Trisha K. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> That's really funny. I respect people who are accountants because whenever I sort of try to look at a numeric spreadsheet that, and budget, I just break it into hives. So thank you, Patricia, Aww. for doing the difficult work that um, scares the rest of us. Next, we have Suzanne Latany, and Suzanne is from Enniskillen, Ontario. Enniskillen, wine country. Oh, you know Enniskillen? Yeah, of course I do. There you go. And she says, buy yourselves a few donuts. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Suzanne. Yeah, uh, so what does Suzanne do there in Enniskillen? 
She's a grape stomper. Oh, so it's, yeah. Yeah. And, well, there you go. And, but it's cold when she makes the ice wine. Her, well, you don't want to be tipping out of the... Free, feet freeze during the wintertime when she's crushing the frozen grapes. Oh, well, there you go. Um, next we have from Surrey, British Columbia. Actually, I'm looking at the address very close by. Um, Pam Atwal. She says, go shit in your hats. Hi, Mike and Matt from Wally, BC. Well, that Wally in Surrey, BC. That's where we are. I love listening to your banter and the care taken when speaking about the victims. Hope to run into you in good old Newton one day. Well, I'm not there anymore. I'm, I'm in your neighborhood now. Take care and keep up the great work. P.S. I had goosebumps the whole time listening to the episode about Clifford Olson. My brother has sworn his whole life that Clifford tried to pick him up in the Cedar Hills area when he was a kid. He threw his bike in a ditch and ran from the van that he was asked to get into. Shivers as I write, Pam Atwal. Well, thank you, Pam. But thank yeah. you, neighbor. Yeah, neighbor, neighbor. I'm gonna I'm gonna crank some hardcore techno while I drive out, mm-hmm. and then hopefully she listens to this tomorrow. Here's she'll <laughs> she'll know that it, she, that that <laughs> was me. What what are you driving today? Um, like a smart car. I'm driving a Toyota Prius. Oh, a little Prius. Very yep. cute. Vroom vroom. Vroom, vroom. And that's it for Donut Money donors and patrons. Thank you, folks. Thank you, everybody. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us Donut Money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. That's it for this week's episode of Dark Poutine. So until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. I'm just staring at Matthew. He's not saying a word. He's just looking. I have this song in my head. What is the song? My humps, my humps, my lovely lady bumps. Lumps, I think, lady lumps. Lady lump. lumps. I, I don't know a lot about ladies. It just reminds me. I don't know if they're bumps. It reminds me of, a, of one of the Flight of the Concords songs called Sugar Lumps. <laughs> <laughs> the ladies love my sugar lumps. And on that, we'll leave you with their sugar lumps, and we'll see you next week. Sugar lumps and lady lumps. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>